Hello everyone, welcome again to another episode of History 101 Podcast. It seems like it was just not too long ago that uh, last that last night um, I was on the air uh, talking to you all, my audience, about uh, New Hampshire. Well, tonight we're going to discuss about Massachusetts in uh, the book Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence by Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diognes. Well, you know, history um, in general, I should say, um, based off of what I've learned from the 13 colonies, if I had to pick two that I've probably learned the most about, it's been Virginia and Massachusetts. Think about it. They were the first of the two uh, 13 colonies to be um, established. But last night, um, I learned a great deal about New Hampshire that was um, well worth the time and energy to be sharing with the audience. And I hope that um, you all um, received uh, information that was relevant. And that's obviously a um, a fundamental essential to this. It's not just uh, re- reporting um trivial information. It's it's reporting information that um, can be of great use no matter uh, what setting you're in. So, uh, Massachusetts, uh, I decided to do a little research on Massachusetts itself before talking about some of the signers who um, signed the Declaration of Independence from that um, state. Well, you know, we've all been told that uh, Massachusetts was settled by the Pilgrims in 1620 when they arrived at Plymouth Rock. And while that is true, history has forgotten to tell us that Europeans actually arrived in Massachusetts um, prior to the Pilgrims' official um, settling of Plymouth uh, Rock. Now, here's a little bonus um trivia question for um, my listeners. Um, Why is New England referred to as New England? Well, to make a long story short, uh, Captain John Smith, who was a part of that um, Jamestown um, voyage of 1607, um, he was injured in uh, what we would call a random act of gunfire in 1608 that forced him to um, be sent back home to England for recovery purposes. John Smith, though, um, in the years after that incident, um, led a group of um, explorers who um, settled, um, or not, should I not say settled, but who explored uh, the area that we know as the New England region, being Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, he led an expedition up into that area, and he referred to it as New England because it was um, a new um, territory, or should I say new territory, that was established by the English, not so much for John Smith himself, but for future um, English explorers and English um, individuals or groups of people who were wanting to uh, settle um, in that um area um, named in honor of England by being called New England. That's my interpretation of it, but I think it makes as good 101 sense as uh, possible. So, um, 
what Indian tribes are living in uh, Massachusetts prior to the Europeans arriving? Well, in in Massachusetts, there are um, a fair number of Indian tribes that are living along um, the coast, most notably the Algonquian uh, tribes, ranging from the Wampanoag, the Narragansett, Nipmuc, Pocomtuck, Mohican to Massachusetts. Not Massachusetts, but Massachusetts. So there we have it, people. It could be possible that Massachusetts, more than likely, is named after the Massachusetts tribe. For many of these Indians, or should I say the Indian tribes, they lived in villages comprised of lodges known as wigwams and longhouses. And and the leaders of the Indian tribes were not all confined to just men. Women themselves played prominent roles, or should I say equal roles. Both male and female leaders were referred to as sachems. It might be safe to say that a sachem is like the equivalent of a sage, meaning like a wise person. Well, prior to 1620, as mentioned a short while ago, um, Europeans did explore uh, Massachusetts, and they may have even tried to um, have attempted to uh, establish a settlement. How, tr- how true that is, I don't know. But what I do know is that prior to the Pilgrims' arrival in 1620, roughly 90% of the Massachusetts Bay Native American peoples or tribes succumbed to what is known as smallpox between 1617 and 1619 due to previous, or should I say, due to multiple encounters with Europeans. Well, remember people, prior to the Europeans coming into what we now know back then as the New World, the Indians had no contact with outsiders, and perhaps that may have been a good thing, Unfortunately, when the Europeans arrive, and we're not just talking the English, but most notably the Spanish, the Europeans bring in diseases like smallpox, influenza, to measles. The Indians have no immunity to, to these illnesses. In other words, they don't have any kind of um, medicine lined up to uh, fight the symptoms that are brought on by these um, diseases. It's even safe to say that for many Indians, or should I say Indian tribes or civilizations who came in contact with Europeans, they were often referred to as an invasive species. You know, we think of invasive species as like animals. But in the eyes of the Indians, Europeans were like an, like an animal of sorts. They kept coming from all different directions. It, you know, it was one thing for one group to arrive. But then you have multiple groups arriving. It's bad enough that, yes, one group could bring disease, but when you have multiple groups of Europeans coming over in waves, um, there's no, what do you call it, check and balance system as to say, hey, you know, this is how much is to be regulated and this is where the buck stops. So, um, when did um, Massachusetts... Given that the Pilgrims, yes, arrived in 1620, is it safe to say even at that point in time that Massachusetts is considered um, a uh, state-slash-colony 
not just yet. It takes about nine more years until Massachusetts is um, actually um, established as an actual colony. It was referred to as the Bay Colony, and it makes sense because it's on the water. And it, um, it was established by both Pilgrims and Puritans. Now, I always thought for the longest time that the Puritans were uh, groups of uh, men who uh, came to Virginia to reform the Anglican Church from within, but um, I will admit that I um, did get some information uh, mixed up on it. And the Puritans, uh, we should know, are those who had endured harsh treatment, or should I say authority, from the Church of England, or what we know as the Anglican Church. The Puritans actually came to the New World with the goal of establishing a religious-based society. In other words, religion that uh, wasn't so much uh, strict. It, was, it wasn't conformed to... to um, strict uh, scripture. It, it was um, relaxed somewhat, but still um, uh, the Puritans did not want what you call like a dictatorial style of governing from within the church. And so, um, you know, we think, oh, establishing religious-based societies, everyone lives in harmony, but that's not the case. Even if you, just because you were... Um, a Puritan, it didn't mean you got along with everybody else who was one. But what is unique about Massachusetts at this time is that it was the first colony to be formed through means of religious dissent. Now think about it. In 1629, you've only got uh, really two colonies that are uh, firmly established. It might be safe to say, of course, that this I could end up being wrong here, but you take a look at Virginia. Uh, the the men who came over to Virginia in 1607 to establish what we know as Jamestown came for economic purposes, whereas in Massachusetts, when the first group arrived, being 1620, who uh, settled in um, what we now know as Plymouth Rock, they came over for um, to escape religious uh, persecution. Sure, they could have come for economic reasons, but it was primarily to escape religious uh, persecution. So now we're going to be uh, moving on to um, the what do you call it the um, the core of the um, what I like to call the primary um, aspect of uh, tonight's um, discussion. Well, um, how many men from Massachusetts signed the Declaration of Independence? Um, I will give you a number. It's between um, four and six. The answer is five. Does anybody want to know who were those five five signers? Well, I'll give you a hint. One of them we already know, or ought to know. He was on the committee of five. That was John Adams. But who were the other four? One of them is his cousin, Samuel Adams. Another man named Elbridge Jerry. Another named John Hancock. And lastly, a man by the name of Robert Treat Payne, whose name um, was heavily mentioned in the last um, book review that I shared with you all, being from Dan Abrams' novel, John Adams Under Fire. Robert Treat Payne was one of the lead prosecutors in the Boston Massacre trials. And as mentioned from that book, while, yes, he and John Adams 
did work together on many uh, assignments or projects to benefit um, the people of Boston, or should I say the city of Boston. They did have differences that were um, complex at times, but when it came to signing the Declaration of Independence, they were able to put aside whatever differences they had to work for the common good of not just so much for the people of Massachusetts, but for everyone else who um, had endured, um, what do you call it, unlimited um, amounts of uh, abuse from uh, Parliament in terms of all the unruly pieces of legislation that were um, not only just negative, but had uh, long-term harmful uh, consequences uh, for both political economic, and should I say social reasons. So uh, how many of these uh, men are we going to talk about tonight from Massachusetts? After thorough research, I've decided that we're going to talk about three of them. They will be Samuel Adams, Elbridge Jerry, and John Hancock. Are John Adams and Robert Treat Payne important? Well, absolutely. But I felt like, you know, that these other three men need to be talked about because while they may not have been on the committee of five, they did play an important part. So we're going to start with John Adams's cousin, Samuel Adams. Now Samuel Adams was mentioned um, quite a bit in the, um, in Dan Abrams John Adams under fire, but in this book, signing their lives away, I learned a great deal about Samuel Adams that I didn't know beforehand. Of course, we see his, um, what do you call it, uh, picture on those Sam Adams uh, beer bottles. Now, I will get to that here shortly, but but for all you uh, beer lovers out there who like drinking Sam Adams, you'll be in for some interesting, or should I say, you'll be in for an interesting surprise on that um, business business. adventure that was a family-run business. But yes, Samuel Adams was born in the year 1722, and as mentioned last night when I talked about the signers from New Hampshire, it is safe to say that in the case of Samuel Adams, he was also born during a time when um, all 13 colonies, or should I say Yes, all 13 colonies were um, on good relations with the mother country, being England. But here's another good example uh, in terms of how many colonies there were when Mr. Samuel Adams was born. When he was born in 1722, there were only 12 colonies. Remember, Georgia isn't established until 1733. So, ironically, Samuel Adams, by the time 1733 comes around, he will be 11 years old when Georgia is established. Now, um, the British, uh, if they had to pick one individual who in their eyes was a true um, instigator, a true uh, leader behind this revolutionary movement in Massachusetts, they often have said that it's none other than Mr. Samuel Adams. He is quite frankly referred to as the poster boy of independence. However, there is a, um, a double-edged sword to this. It turns out that Samuel Adams himself did not advocate separation from England until, fi- until fighting, actu- or should I say actual fighting, broke out in the year 1775. 
I think I may know why Samuel Adams did not advocate official separation from England until fighting, or, or should I say, um, warfare actually began. Samuel Adams, like many of our forefathers, really, um, truly believed in their hearts that war was an actual last resort when everything else had failed. So in other words, many of our forefathers, while yes, they had grave concerns about the injustices that Parliament had um, imposed on the colonists, ranging from that infamous Stamp Act to the Townshend Duties, to the Quartering Act, uh, to the Quebec Act, uh, the list can go on and on, or, or that I should, and I also should mention that infamous Port Act that closed the Port of Boston. Um, but many of them truly wanted to believe in their hearts that some form of reconciliation could be made. But in the end, it was too late, especially by the time the battles of Lexington and Concord are um, are taking place. And that is, and that's so imperative because those two battles were infamously referred to as the shots heard round the world. In other words, we don't really know necessarily who fired the first shot, whether it was on the British or the Patriot side. But what we do know is that the Americans, or should I say the Patriots, stood their ground by not backing down and firing a shot to prove to the mightiest empire in the world that, hey... We can take up forces with you, but we're not going to back down. And we will give you everything we've got, even if we are outnumbered. So, that is why it's not until um, actual uh, combat, that until actual combat occurs that Sam Adams finally advocates separation from England. As mentioned a moment ago, the, the uh, Loyalists, or the Tories, um, referred to him as the poster child for independence. So it's very obvious to say that Mr. Samuel Adams is not popular with the Tories, or should I say the Loyalists, who truly did believe that he was the instigator of instigators. In other words, he was always stirring the pot for trouble. Well, you know, Samuel Adams did a lot of good things. I mean, yes, he wasn't perfect, but then again, none of our forefathers were 100% perfect, but yet when it came to signing this Declaration of Independence and being able to put aside any existing differences or issues, they certainly knew how to come through the clutch when it mattered most. But as for Samuel Adams, he helped start a weekly newspaper, which was known as the Public Advertiser, which focused on Parliament's abuses toward the colonists. Okay, um, oh, here you go, um, you beer lovers out there. It is true that Samuel Adams's family did run a family business, being a brewery. But here's the uh, here's the the question to answer everything you want to know: Was Sam Adams himself a successful businessman? I hate to say this, but he wasn't. When his father died, Samuel inherited the family business, or should I say, the brewery business. And it failed so badly to where it resulted in him being in debt, not just as a result of a bad investment, but he never got out of debt for the rest of his life. And believe me, 
there were plenty of people in the time that our forefathers lived who never did get out of debt, regardless of of uh, status in society. We know that many of our prominent um, figures who were well-to-do, came from well-to-do families, died thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. But Mr. Samuel Adams did have um, support, and many of his friends came to support him and his family. But the irony to it was that Samuel Adams and his family never took advantage of those who helped him. That speaks a lot. You know, it's one thing to want to help someone. However, that individual who's being helped has to find a way to help themselves. And believe me, Samuel Adams did that. It may have um, come in odd ways of returning the favor, but he always found a way to do it. And he didn't go around making excuses either. You know, he was offered money. Not just money, but in the form of bribes. Uh, he was also uh, offered uh, bribes that involved property. But he declined all of those offers by, re- by remaining humble and honest. And that speaks high volumes. In other words, he could have said, hey, I'll take this money, even if I know it's illegal, just to uh, better my own status or just to see to it that my family will be better off financially now uh, than they were, say, just the day before or a few weeks back. You know, in today's time, uh, politicians, especially up in Washington, D.C., are pretty much viewed as being crooked. It's probably been that way for some time, but I think it's gotten worse over the years, in recent years. Oh, when I say recent, what what are you referring to? Maybe within the last 25 years? I'm honestly not sure. Maybe it's because we live in a world now where the media gets its hands on so much now that, say, 40 or 50 years ago, it would have been known, but there was a better sense of regulation as to what was appropriate and not appropriate to be sharing to the rest of the um, public. But, of course, that's a whole other topic and a whole other matter that could be discussed at a later time. But what I'm trying to get at here is this. Uh, Someone once said this, and it is true, that an honest politician is often um, seen as a dead one. Well, Sam Adams was an honest man. He didn't die uh, by means of violence. But in other words, he was um, being honest by not trying to become something that he shouldn't be. Yes, he was already an ardent patriot as it was, but did he need to accept money to enhance his status when he already had something going for him when you consider that he helped start a weekly newspaper? So the answer is yes. In other words, if you have something going for you, that's great, but don't accept money thinking that it's going to uh, better your status when you perhaps should already be happy with what you have. Uh, There is a little bit more to tell you here about Mr. Samuel Adams, and let me get to my next set of notes here. Well, what else did Mr. Adams do? He served in the Massachusetts legislature, which was a good deed. 
And how ironic that Thomas Jefferson, who was the founding author of the Declaration of Independence, dubbed Mr. Samuel Adams as a patriarch of liberty. Why um, is it safe to say that he um, could be considered a patriarch of liberty? Well, I think it's safe to say that because um, when he founded this um, weekly newspaper, The Public Advertiser, he was um, always uh, keeping colonists informed on what Parliament was doing that was just unfair. He was giving those a voice who had never even really had a voice before. So in other words, not only did Samuel Adams cater to those who were um, educated and had various forms of formal education, he was catering to those who had little formal education. He was giving them some sign of hope that, hey, that maybe tomorrow will be better than what we currently have today. He also helped draft the Articles of Confederation, which was the precursor to the U.S. Constitution. And when the U.S. Constitution came about in 1787, he was hesitant to sign the document, and the reason why was because it lacked a Bill of Rights. I think it's fair to say that most of our uh, forefathers or individuals who signed the U.S. Constitution did refuse to sign it at first because there were, were no such thing as a Bill of Rights. In other words, when I think of the Bill of Rights and what most of us need to be reminded of is that without the Bill of Rights, government itself has too much excessive power. In other words, government would be regulating free speech. It would be regulating the right to assemble and petition. Government would be imposing regulations left and right to where uh, freedom itself just might not exist. So, in other words, with the Bill of Rights, you have the right to free speech, the right to peacefully assemble and petition, and you also have another good example is the right to a fair and speedy trial, which we have none other than Mr. John Adams to thank, Samuel's cousin, in light of what he had done during those infamous Boston Massacre trials from 1770. Samuel Adams also was very instrumental in serving as a lieutenant governor to his friend and signer uh, of the Declaration of Independence, Mr. John Hancock. And ironically, in 1793, Samuel Adams becomes governor of Massachusetts. And this didn't happen by means of an election. He actually um, became governor as a result of Mr. Hancock's passing. In 1803, Samuel Adams died at the age of 81. And, you know, to have lived to have been 81 at the beginning of the 19th century was very remarkable. I would have to say that with all the challenges that people could have faced in 18th and 19th century um, times, I am amazed to find out just how old many people did live to be. I think, though, it could be said that many of those people didn't have the same kind of distractions like we have today. While, yes, life expectancy is much better today than it might have been 300 years ago, another factor I can say is that people um, ate better. They um, knew how to go about um, eating properly, um, in, in large part because of the seasons, you know, 
not to get off track, but another good example here is that here we are in a world today where people can eat any kind of food at any time of the year. But we have to remember 300 years ago, people weren't eating roast beef in the summer. People were eating roast beef or any kind of other um, meat in the winter time. Uh, you ate a lot of stuff that was based on the season. So in other words, you learned to survive based off of what was available in season. And I think that could be said the same could be said for Sam Adams and many of our other forefathers. Ironically, uh, Samuel Adams lived to see his cousin John Adams become president, and he lived um, to see Thomas Jefferson as well take the office of the of presidency. And I just realized, too, that when Sam Adams died in 1803, the Lewis and Clark expedition was getting ready to begin. So Sam Adams lived to see many unique things uh, in our country. An ardent patriot. And yes, Thomas Jefferson was right to dub him as a patriarch of liberty. Well, who do we move on to next from Massachusetts? Our second person whom, will we, whom we will be discussing is Elbridge Jerry. Another um, prominent figure, but yet another interesting figure whose um, last name has a lot to do with a famous term that is a very unpleasant one that has existed in our nation's political history in terms of politics purposes from the early uh, times of the 19th century up until the very present. And the term itself probably will not go away until the end of time. But we'll get to that here in a short while. Well, Elbridge Jerry is born in the year 1744. And how ironic that he and Thomas Jefferson are only a year apart from each other. Jefferson was born in 1743. How did Elbridge Jerry become successful? Well, he was a, he was a merchant. But being a merchant can mean anything. He was a well-to-do cod importer. In other words, uh, cod being uh, fish that uh, were um, harvested and uh, marketed and uh, shipped off to other places in the world, most notably in the Caribbean and the West Indies. But he was also a shipping merchant. Well, one could say by being a successful cod importer and a shipping merchant that not only was he just a successful businessman, but that he could... Um, provide people with connections left and right. You would think that, oh, this man is so successful in his practice that he must be a very nice person to work with. I hate to tell you this, but one of his biggest flaws was that he, um, he was very inconsistent. How so? Well, in other words, he would say something and then do the opposite. Isn't that true of many of our politicians today? They'll say that they are committed to X, Y, and Z when running for office or going up for re-election or just um, delivering a um, sales pitch to woo uh, potential voters. Yes, indeed. Well, I can give you some examples of where Elbridge Jerry was classic for saying one thing and then doing the opposite. He was not a big fan of standing armies, 
And it is safe to say that many of our forefathers, or not just forefathers, but people in general, would not have been in favor of a standing army. And if any of you all wonder, what is a standing army? What it just means is that it's a it's a presence of a um, military who um, may not know its borders or boundaries, and they, it may not recognize when force is necessary and when it's not. In other words, it's a large um, body that, um, if unregulated, can uh, violate its um, system of what we might refer to as checks and balances. Um, so basically, Elbridge Jerry opposes a standing army, but yet he expects military recruiters to lock soldiers into long-term enlistment contracts. Maybe it's safe to say that Elbridge Jerry wanted soldiers to be committed for long-term purposes so that, um, so that once they were um, involved in the military, they would never leave. Uh, in other words, being in the military, in his eyes, was not just a one-time thing. If you were going to be in the military, it should be something that you should be committed to um, for long-term purposes. But I can say, I can honestly say that um, if he did not like a standing army, that's one thing, but wording it is another. He did not like military men, but yet he was pals with General George Washington. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being friends with General George Washington. After all, he is the father of our country. He's in the first He's first in the hearts of everyone. But here's a trick question. If he doesn't like military men, who could he be necessarily referring to? He could be referring to various other men who served in the military, most notably during the American Revolution. But, here's, but the question here is that he didn't um, truly specify why he did not like military men. Perhaps it might be a good thing he didn't say it, because if he had, then he would have been burning several bridges. Well, um, here's where we're going to get to uh, the meat of, of uh, our subject on Elbridge Jerry. And what I mean by the meat is, is the hardcore evidence that leads us to this question. What is Elbridge Jerry famous for having politically crafted? The answer is the following. He helped um, craft or establish what is known as gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is often referred to as the worst strategy in U.S. politics or in the history of our democracy. It began as a practice when Elbridge Jerry himself became governor of Massachusetts, and he helped support a plan which redrew all state Senate voting districts just to favor his party. What party did he belong to? Well, in his time, you know, you could either have been a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist, but another name for the Anti-Federalists was the Democratic-Republican Party, which was spearheaded by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. 
Well, Elbridge Gerry was a part of that anti-federalist movement. But there was but there was a huge drawback. Of course, gerrymandering has had huge drawbacks, many repercussions, but in his time that he was living, a political cartoonist recognized one of the um, districts, and he saw that it was like the, the it to him it, it resembled a salamander. While salamanders may not be gigantic creatures, they are big for who for what they represent in terms of a creature or like an amphibian. But the district resembled a salamander. And based off of that description, that is how gerrymandering got started. Gerrymandering to this day um, remains a prevalent problem. And it is seen by many as one of the biggest threats to democracy. It allows political parties, regardless of whom they are, to manipulate votes. Not just in one district, but in other uh, regions of a district, just to get extra votes. Not just extra votes, but votes of, say, a certain class of society while disenfranchising uh, people who are of lower status. And not just of lower status, but by uh, means of shutting out those who are of other ethnicities. Well, um, you know, Elbridge Jerry, um, he could be the equivalent of many modern-day politicians today in that they live lavish lifestyles. They spend like there's no tomorrow. They may claim to say, oh, um, I don't believe in um, wasteful spending, but yet they will go behind their constituents' backs and accept uh, bribes and other favors that are unethical and... Um, end up uh, cheating taxpayers out of their hard-earned money. Well, Elbridge Jerry spent money like there was no tomorrow. He lived a life that he probably should not have been living, lived lavishly, lived beyond his means, and by the time he dies in 1814, um, he was broke. He had no money, and he left his family so bad off to where even... His family could not even afford to pay his funeral. Well, who picks up the slack and pays for his um, funeral services? Congress. Believe it or not, Congress in 1814 was willing to do this. And I'll give you a little hint here. 1814 is not a good year for the United States of America. I'll probably share this book in um, in another season, that is. But if any of you all know what's going on in 1814, we're already into the third year of what's known as the War of 1812, which is America's second war for independence. Washington, D.C. is pretty much annihilated by the British. British forces set the White House on fire. They set the Capitol on fire. Every building is pretty much destroyed, with the exception of one. And that one building being, I want to say, the post office building, is where Congress has to meet 
just to get its business done. That time in 1814 being September of that year when Washington burnt, it was like, it, it pretty much was the equivalent of a 9-11 for its time. But Elbridge Jerry does pass away in the year 1814, and given just how bad um, things are in Washington, the uh, Congress decides that they can still find a way to pay for his funeral. Now, of course, it's probably safe to say that whatever expenses there were to cover a funeral in 1814 probably were not anywhere like they are today. So, um, while yes, Elbridge Jerry did do some good things, especially in terms of being a merchant and a well-to-do cod importer, we do sadly have him to thank for what we now know as gerrymandering. And as long as uh, we are all alive, uh, gerrymandering will never go away. Uh, people, uh, being politicians, will find a way to f do anything, whatever it takes to favor their district to the point where interests only cater to them and to you know certain groups of people while shutting out, er shutting out those who are not um, at the top of the list. Our final person we will be talking about tonight is none other than Mr. John Hancock. His name is mentioned quite a bit, and if we um, notice on the Declaration of Independence um, carefully, his name is written in bold, um, big, um, what do you call it, writing. There is a reason for that, because he was the first signer him and his secretary, Charles Thompson, were the, were the first two people to sign the Declaration of, of Independence on July 4th. Well, here's what I know about John Hancock. He was born in 1737. He was the son of a clergyman. He was born in Braintree, which ironically happens to be the same town where John Adams himself was born in. Uh, Braintree... Um, we would consider today as being like a suburb or a town outside of uh, Boston. Tragically, John Hancock lost his father when he was at age seven. His mother was still alive, but yet his mother struggled um, to um, not only just support young John Hancock, but whatever siblings he had. So to ease any would-be problems, Mr. Hancock's mother sent him um, off to go live with an uncle, not just an, an uncle, but one who was successful, and not just being successful, but he would be described as what we now know today as a, as a self-made millionaire, or should I say a shipping tycoon. Well, John Hancock benefited a great deal from living with his uh, uncle, not just because he was wealthy, but his uncle saw to it that Mr. Hancock, um, or should I say young Jan John Hancock, um, was going to make be able to make a name for himself. He ended up attending Boston Latin School, which today still remains as the oldest operating public school in the nation. He also attended that same Ivy League school in Massachusetts, as John Adams did. Not Harvard, but Harvard. 
And believe it or not, in 1760, he traveled to England on a business um, trip. And while he was there, he witnessed a unique um, piece of history. Of course, in 1760, we're still um, involved in the French and Indian War. And it is safe to say that in 1760, most of the colonies, including their people, still have pretty good allegiances to the crown. But in 1760, John Hancock witnesses King George III becoming the king of England. In other words, John Hancock attended the coronation. He, I'm sure he probably didn't get a, an, an advance ticket for the event, but nonetheless, he was there. And he was the only one of our signers of the Declaration of Independence who actually witnessed King George III be coronated. His uncle died... But ironic, but as sad as it was that his uncle died, his uncle left um, his nephew, being none other than Mr. John Hancock, in good hands. Before reaching the age of 30, young John Hancock becomes a very rich man. Basically, he becomes the equivalent of a modern-day millionaire. And as a result of his uncle's passing, he inherits the business and what is this business? It revolves around um, ship, shipping and anything that would involve port-related matters. He was, in fact, a pillar of his community. He helped fund his alma mater, being Harvard. He did many other ordinary activities, or not activities, but many other ordinary um, offerings and assistance such as paying for street lamps and concert halls, to helping friends and their families who were less fortunate, especially Samuel Adams. And what I find is a nice act of kindness for 1776 standards. As mentioned earlier, Samuel Adams spent the rest of his life in debt, especially after the brewery business collapsed. But John Hancock knew that Samuel Adams had a lot to offer uh, in, at the time that the Declaration of Independence was coming about. He looked after Sam Adams to the point where he said to him, Hey, I know that you may not have the best clothes given your status, but I've got connections, and with the money I have, I can see to it that you are um, better um, presentable. In other words, did Sam Adams care about how he looked? Sure, but he was struggling to, f to uh, find money to have clothes that were um, attracted, attractive, rather I should say, presentable, and making a man who he ought to be. So John Hancock uh, gives him, or should I say buys him, uh, fancy clothing attire that is, um, that is essential when um, when uh, coming together as one entity to um, s to sign uh, the Declaration of Independence. In other words, nobody wants to see a fuddy dud, but nobody wants to be remembered as being a fuddy dud, especially at a time when um, there's so much unrest 
in um, declaring separation from England. Well, John Hancock was elected president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress in 1774. He helped raise bands of Minutemen. Now, who are the Minutemen? Well, Massachusetts um, has often been referred to as producing soldiers who uh, joined um, not just um, armies and militias, but for many of them, they came on at the last minute ready to fight. In other words, people like Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, James Otis, um, Dr. Samuel Prescott, anybody else who was of high um, status and being an ardent patriot was willing to go out of their way to get the word out to say, hey, the British are coming, be prepared, let's get ready to go. So by getting this warning, at the, even if it's at the last minute, the Minutemen are ready to come out and fight in all numbers, left and right. John Hancock is the, also the president of the Continental Congress from 1775 to 1777. He really was, in more ways than others, the first person to stick his neck out for independence. And that's really safe to say, given that he, that he and his secretary were the first two to sign this document on July 4th, the day that it is um, fully approved. And remember, as I said uh, from a previous um, podcast, July 2nd was the, was the day of motioning. July 4th was the day of actual approval. In the years after the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock continued to uh, be active with Massachusetts affairs. He was actually the first governor, or should I say the first non-royal governor of Massachusetts from 1780 until his death in 1793. And, as mentioned earlier, the person who took over for him was none other than Mr. Samuel Adams. John Hancock didn't make it to the age of 60. Um, he died between the ages of 55 and 56. That was considered to be old for his time. But even though he didn't make it to the age of 60, he still lived a remarkable life. And the fact that he was a pillar of his community and was willing to help friends and their families who were less fortunate, it does go to show you that while, yes, he had lots of money, he knew how to invest it right. Uh, it is safe to say that he could have been an example of what we call old money. In other words, he didn't need to go around and flaunt his possessions. There is an old saying that old money and new money don't go hand in hand. Those who have old money, or should I say come from old money, know where to invest it, but they also have boundaries as to how far they are willing to go to, um, to show people what they really have. They may have stuff that, say, only a certain group of people can afford, but they don't go around and say, oh, look at me, I'm better than you, I have this and you don't. Uh, those who come from new money, they like to show what they have, but at the same time they like to flaunt it to the point where, they, um, where boundaries just don't exist. So, um, when John Hancock dies, you know, before actually before he dies, one of his wishes was to have a funeral that 
didn't have a lot of um, what we call grandeur. It didn't have um, something that we might call um, being lied in, um, in state or lying in state before um, an actual funeral takes place. Well, John Hancock actually got the opposite. His funeral resulted really in him going out with a bang. In other words, he um, got a, um, what do you call like a five-star funeral. Uh, people remembered him for being uh, the first um, to stick his neck out for independence, being the first to sign the document. Um, but he did it all with class and uh, dignity, or should I say dignity and class. So um, we've uh, covered a lot of ground tonight on Massachusetts. But before I wrap it up, I can say that um, while five may seem like a big number for the, uh, the total of men who signed this document from Massachusetts, I do believe that there would have been a sixth person. You know, some people could say, why not Paul Revere signing the Declaration of Independence? That's a good, uh, a good question there. I'm not sure why he didn't. I do believe that uh, the sixth person who would have signed it had he not died at the Battle of Bunker Hill the year earlier in 1775, that individual would have been none other than Dr. Joseph Warren. Now, I read a book on Dr. Joseph Warren last year written by uh, Christopher um, de Spagna. Uh, I believe that's how you spell his last name, but the book is titled um, Founding Martyr. Dr. Joseph Warren was really the first um, individual at the time um, before, we, uh, before warfare itself broke out to really get the message out to the patriots. He was really the first to at really uh, fully advocate independence on a grand scale. Other men like Paul Revere, Sam Adams, and John Hancock were ardent patriots, but Dr. Joseph Warren had a very um, unique calling. And I think it could be said in large part because about a month before the Boston Massacre incident occurred, a young 11-year-old boy died being Christopher Sider. He died at the hands of uh, loyalists who uh, shot him because he and a group of other young men had vandalized one man's business to the point where the business owner felt it was necessary to take matters into his own hands by gunning this 11-year-old boy down. Sometimes it does take the death of a young child to become galvanized to where um, the, a rally cry is necessary. And for Dr. Joseph Warren, uh, he went out into battle. He even said that if he was going to die, he wanted to die for something that he believed in was right. And he did lead a charge, especially on that third uh, frontal assault. Sadly, at that third frontal assault, we, um, we being the Patriots, had ran out of ammunition. We had pretty much uh, slaughtered um, British um, units coming up the hill on two previous occasions. In the end, we killed about 25% of their force. But what got us in the end wasn't so much the lack of ammunition. It was that the British had finally uh, figured something out by using their bayonets to drive us away. 
Dr. Joseph Warren sadly died by means of a gunshot wound to the head by the British. Uh, it was a very sad event because um, had it not been for Dr. Joseph Warren, perhaps the cause for independence in terms of being a martyr or a speaker, a, a man who could um, lead a rally left and right might not have happened. So to answer this question, if there was a sixth signer from Massachusetts, it would have been none other than Dr. Joseph Warren. I think it is fair to say that the other five men who signed from Massachusetts being John and Samuel Adams, Robert Treat Payne, um, John Hancock and Elbridge Jerry, they all signed that document not because they not so much because they believed in separation from England. They did it in honor of, jo of Dr. Joseph Warren. They basically picked up where he left off. Dr. Warren lived to see a movement that was, that was still in its infancy or beginning, but he sadly never got to see the final outcome. Not just one final outcome with the Declaration of Independence, but he never got to see us truly achieve independence by having defeated the mightiest empire in the world. Well, tonight has been a great discussion, and I plan on getting back with my audience here soon for another uh, 101 podcast session on signing their lives away. And we still have a lot more to cover, but that is all for the better. So take care, God bless, and good night.